Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I want to welcome you all to the first of our series of talks on the theme of reconstruction. And the premise of our, our series this year is the idea that many people think that there might be some significant social and political changes in the wake of the onset of this uh, terrible pandemic that we're all living through. And, and, and some people um, think that it might be sufficiently um, major change to be parallel to something like what happened in the wake of the Second World War. So what we wanted to do was to sort of start a conversation about what kind of opportunities there might be and what kind of dangers there might be for people who are thinking about those changes and especially thinking about them from the point of view of a broadly progressive politics. And to start that conversation tonight, we want to uh, explore really the relationship between science and politics and what the effect of the pandemic has been on that. And I'm, I'm very pleased to say that uh, I can welcome two particularly well-qualified speakers to talk to us tonight. And I'd just like to introduce them both to you. So our first speaker is going to be Laura Spinney. Um, Laura is an author and a science journalist. She studied the natural sciences at Durham University and has had various affiliations since, including recently at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. And she's published no less than five books. I don't know how she's managed to do that. Most recently, the widely discussed Pale Rider, which I'm holding up here now, um, which is a history of the 1918 Spanish flu. If you've followed her writings, you'll know that her long-form journalism covers a wide range of topics, many of them, in fact, dealing with medicine and, and the history of medicine, and they've appeared in prestigious journals like Nature and The New Scientist, National Geographic, uh, The Economist, The Guardian, and, and elsewhere besides. So she's particularly well-placed, I think, to analyse the current pandemic and to place it in historical context for us. Well, our second speaker is Professor Neil Ferguson, he is an epidemiologist and professor of mathematical biology at Imperial College, where he's also, amongst a whole range of other things that he does, the director of the Centre for Global Infectious Disease Analysis. And he has two degrees, a first degree in physics and also a, a doctorate in theoretical physics, both at Oxford University. And he's gone on to gain, I think, you know, I think really he's gone on to gain an unparalleled reputation for his work on the development of mathematical and statistical modelling dealing with the evolution and transmission of infectious diseases. And uh, I mean, unfortunately, he's had a lot to work on. Uh, I mean, he's worked on uh, outbreaks around the world, not just here in Britain, foot and mouth disease, but the swine flu outbreak, the mares outbreak, Ebola, um, dengue fever and, and, and a range of other things. But here in Britain, many of you may have come across him because he uh, was playing a leading role in advising the government during the period when the current pandemic broke out and was an important member of the government's scientific advisory committee, a so-called SAGE committee. And his modelling is, is widely credited with having influenced or in fact changed the government's basic policy stance on how to deal with it. So um, he really has important first-hand experience about the interface between politics and science. So listen, what we're going to do is um, the speakers are both going to speak for about 
20 minutes and then I'm going to very briefly ask them a question and then we're going to open, open it up to questions from the audience um, which you can put into the Q&A and they'll be, they'll be fed through. Of course, we won't be able to take every question, but we'll try to take a selection of questions on a, on a range of different topics. But before I turn to my speakers, um, can I just ask you to sort of metaphorically join me in clapping our uh, speakers and welcoming them to the metaphorical London School of Economics. Um, so a very warm welcome to you both, Laura Spinian, Professor Neil Ferguson, and I turn the floor over now to you, Laura. Thanks very much, Robin. So um, <clears throat> Robin asked me to speak to the, this question in a, in a kind of historical context, so that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to make three points, basically, or rather um, two points, and, and then I'm going to end by raising a question, and I'll explore that a little. So the first point is that pandemics are, by their nature, deeply political. Um, the second is that science when it's applied to pandemics, can't help being politicized. And the third, which is really more of a question, is that given that pandemics are political, um, what can we do to improve our response to them? What are the lessons that we can take from history? So the first point, pandemics are by their nature very political. Um, and that starts with the naming of them. So um, if I can take you back 100 years or so, on the 29th of June, 1918, Martin Salazar, who uh, was the Inspector General of Health for Spain, stood up in front of the Royal Academy of Medicine in Madrid and announced somewhat sheepishly that he knew of no cases of influenza anywhere else in Europe. There had been influenza in um, America for uh, the best part of four months, um, in European countries such as Britain and France for at least a number of weeks. But he didn't know that, and most people in those countries didn't know that because those countries censored their press. They suppressed that information supposedly to prevent the morale of their populations from um, sinking. Um, Spain, being neutral in the war, did not censor its press and so covered the first cases that um, uh, exploded in Madrid starting in May. Um, and that's the reason why almost everybody, including Spaniards, assumed that disease was rolling out from Madrid and the name uh, the Spanish flu stuck um, and still sticks. It's still the name we give to that uh, pandemic, one of the uh, most murderous in modern times because it killed at least 50 million people in the world. <clears throat> and it's a huge historical injustice because it didn't start in Spain. We don't actually know where it did start. But you see that same political game being played today over... Um, uh, over this current pandemic, it looks for the moment as if the WHO, the World Health Organization, has succeeded in, in imposing its rather bland, neutral name, COVID-19, for this disease. But that hasn't stopped America and China from uh, uh, squabbling over whether it should be called the American virus or the Chinese virus. And that looks pretty absurd and petty to those of, uh, those of us looking on. Um, but uh, the politicians know that naming has consequences. It has consequences for trade, for politics, for tourism. And they also know that a few generations from now when, uh, when um, people are alive who didn't live through this, the name may be all they retain of this moment, um, just as the Spanish flu is all that many people retain of the pandemic that happened 100 years ago. And in fact, um, one could even argue that the causes of pandemics are political. There are historians who argue that. 
they look back over the vast sweep of human history and they find that there's a statistical association between pandemics, moments of social crisis where there was great inequality and moments which happen to coincide often where the world is very connected. Um, and you can see that, for example, in the second century uh, of the Common Era, um, when uh, both Rome and the Chinese empires were at the peak of their power and uh, extent. Um, the rich were very rich in those empires, the poor were very poor, um, and the Silk Road routes were doing a thriving trade, bringing luxuries to the rich people in both uh, civilizations. And in 165 CE, the Antonine plagues broke out in uh, Rome. The disease eventually spread to China. Within a decade, it was causing ravages there. And afterwards, you see the decline of both empires. And you see this pattern repeated through history. It was the same with the Justinian plagues in the um, uh, 6th century. It was the same with the Black Death in the 14th. In 1918, it's no coincidence that that coincided with a war. It was a moment of extreme inequality. And I don't think it's any coincidence that, that COVID-19 has happened now when, we've see, when we live in societies that are more unequal than they've been since the Second World War. Um, but pandemics have political effects as well. So if you look at, back at 1918, um, there's a consensus among historians that uh, the pandemic accelerated the end of the Great War. There's also a minority view, by the way, that it might have influenced who won that war, but that's somewhat controversial. It had an impact on the peace process, notably by destroying the health of the one moderate negotiator there, Woodrow Wilson, the American president. Um, <clears throat> and it had um, sort of social historical effects. It, it spurred many countries to create or reorganize their health ministries. Um, a debate that had already been happening prior to the pandemic about socialized medicine now bore fruit. You see the first of those healthcare systems being put in place from the 1920s on. The first one was Russia, 1920. Um, of course, then eventually the NHS in the UK, 1948. Doctors in these countries become civil servants. Health itself becomes political. Public health becomes a, a sort of tool for extending political influence. Um, or you could think about the World Health Organization, not created until 1946, but its antecedents are now coming into shape just after 1918 with the health branch of the League of Nations or an anti-epidemic bureau that's created in Vienna in 1919. And there are even earlier antecedents in the international sanitary conferences, which were held um, starting from the middle of the 19th century, 14 of them in total, profoundly political right from the beginning because they were about how to regulate quarantine internationally in a way that caused minimal inter uh, interruption to, to trade. Um, and of course that continues today with the WHO during this pandemic, which is in some ways an arena where the US and China are fighting out their trade war under the guise of, of health diplomacy. So the second observation I wanted to make was that um, science can't help but be politicized in its application to pandemics. Um, and the, the basic observation here is that scientists are always, almost by definition, working in a context of uncertainty when they're thinking about pandemics and trying to control pandemics. They can't do otherwise because the, pa the pathogen that causes the pandemic is always, by definition, novel. Even in the case of flu, which is the disease that's caused the most pandemics in, in human history, 15, we estimate, one five in the last 500 years, um, 
each time flu causes a new pandemic, it's because a new subtype has emerged um, that's sufficiently different to the ones that are already circulating, uh, that nobody alive has any immunity to it. So it's essentially a new pathogen. Um, and so there's a sense in which scientists can only ever be reacting to the last epidemic. They can only be using the information that they gathered then and applying it to the new pathogen, uh, which of course is always going to be a flawed approach, but it's the best that can be done. Um, so you see the World Health Organization, for example, being criticized in 2009 for, uh, for calling an, a pandemic too soon with this was the H1N1 supposed uh, swine flu, um, which was actually a textbook pandemic. It definitely fit the definition spread around the world, um, but it only ended up killing, only ended up killing um, maximum of 600,000 people, there are different estimates, but really not much more than a normal seasonal flu kills in the world. Um, so um, uh, when, Ebola comes along in West Africa, 2014. Uh, the WHO, mindful of being accused of uh, reacting too quickly before, is now accused of reacting too slowly and dragging its feet. Um, and, and you see this kind of pattern. Today, for example, uh, there was an article in the New York Times, a very interesting article, about how the WHO's policy since the beginning of this pandemic, which has been an insistence on keeping borders open, is actually not that supported by the evidence. There's not that much evidence to support that policy. And the suggestion in the article is that the WHO is working according to its institutional memory and responding to previous criticisms again, notably uh, when, when the international community was criticized for overreacting to an outbreak of plague in India in 1994 and shutting down trade and tourism to an extent that caused very much damage to uh, the affected industries in India and might not have been necessary because the epidemic was being brought quite well under local control. Um, in an ideal world, uh, the scientists bring the facts to the table, they bring the evidence, they advise, and the politicians shoulder the burden of taking the ethical decisions, they decide. Um, but that never really translates into reality. Um, partly because of the uncertainty in which the scientists have to work, which I just described, um, and because they themselves don't in any way stand outside society. Um, but also, I think, um, for the reason that I discussed at the beginning, which is that, that pandemics, by their definition, um, tend to coincide with other crises, which means that the politicians have competing priorities. Um, and I'll give you some historical examples of that. In 1918, uh, there was no health ministry in the UK as yet. That was created in 1919. So the burden of managing the epidemic in England, at least, fell on the mainly on the local government board, whose ch uh, chief medical officer was Sir Arthur Newsholm. Now, he was receiving information in the latter part of the spring, early summer of 1918, that the first relatively mild wave of the pandemic that they'd already seen uh, was going to be followed by um, a much more severe second wave in the autumn. Scientists were predicting that, they'd seen that sort of pattern in previous pandemics and they thought it was likely again. So over that summer, <clears throat> News Home drew up plans for reducing the impact of such a wave, second wave, predicted second wave, 
But then he quietly shelved them a little bit later in the summer because he decided, apparently on his own, that uh, the war effort should take precedence. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Atlantic in New York, the health commissioner, uh, Royal S. Copeland, um, delayed declaring a pandemic for weeks, if not months, um, even though he knew that the number of cases was growing in the city, probably because he didn't want to uh, put the brakes on the uh, troop transports, the transports carrying troops to Europe, since New York City was the main uh, disembarkation point, embarkation point, sorry, for them. Um, and he knew that Woodrow Wilson, the president, uh, had taken the advice of his generals and ignored the advice of senior military doctors uh, to stop those transports. So the troop transports in the autumn of 1918, leaving New York, were amongst the deadliest of the war. Um, and just to give you an example, the Leviathan, one of the biggest ships in the world at the time, which left Hoboken, New Jersey on 29th of September 1918, uh, with 9,000 troops aboard, the disease broke out on the ship just as soon as it left harbour. By the time it reached Brest about a week later in Brittany, uh, there were 2,000 cases aboard, there'd been 90 fatalities, and there were Dante-esque scenes of horror in the ship. Um, <clears throat> So I think that I'll leave Neil to talk about that difficult relationship and how it's negotiated in this current pandemic. And I'll just move on to say that, uh, of course, the strength of science is that it can gather evidence later once the pandemic is passed. And so it does drive progress in the long run. Um, and that's the reason why today we have a very sophisticated flu surveillance system across the globe that we didn't have in 1918. It's the reason why we have the means of rapidly diagnosing uh, animal diseases like foot and mouth disease. We didn't have that 20 years ago when there was a, an outbreak in the UK. And that in turn means that we can um, control those diseases much better, nip them in the bud, uh, cut them off and, and cauterize them, if you like, without having to uh, cause too much damage to the livestock industry and do mass culls and things like that. Or you could think about, for example, Ebola, which um, had a profound effect on the way that we um, fund and develop vaccine development, um, the fruits of which we're seeing now during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, governments have got much more involved since Ebola in the funding of, uh, of vaccines. It's not just the private sector now, there are plenty of public-private initiatives um, and there's also more flexibility to the way that clinical trials are constructed. We have what's called now a new pandemic paradigm where those phases of clinical trials that can be uh, run in parallel without compromising safety and efficacy are, and that accelerates in theory the whole process. And sometimes the scientific lessons also come from history or can be reinforced from history. So for example, I was really interested to notice that just this year, research has come out both on COVID-19 and on the 1918 flu, both suggesting that quicker, shorter, stricter lockdowns are more effective in the long run. They save more lives and they mean that less damage is done to the economy. Um, so maybe that's the truth of contagious, dangerous resp uh, respiratory diseases in general, which we can now learn and act on in the future. Um, and then the third and last uh, section of my talk is really the question, given the political nature of pandemics, can we improve our response? What are the lessons we can take from history? 
And I think the first point to make here is that um, I think it's really striking how easily we forget pandemics. Um, so in France, where I live, for example, there is, as far as I know, and I have looked, not a single monument to the 1918 flu, but there are 135,000 monuments to the Great War here in France. Um, and, you know, that's not just about war monument furniture, it does actually have an effect on the way we think. So, I mean, I've read endlessly in the newspapers since this pandemic began, and, and the people uh, who are guilty of this are also doctors, include doctors, saying that this is the worst public health crisis in living, living memory, which simply isn't true. The 1957 so-called Asian flu pandemic killed, um, we estimate, between two and four million people uh, globally. It wasn't any easier there to get the estimates right either. Um, but, you know, we have uh, not quite lost one million lives to COVID-19 yet. Um, so because we forget, we condemn ourselves to repeating this kind of cycle and public health experts talk about it. It's well known, this cycle of pan uh, panic and complacency. We panic when it happens because we don't realise that actually pandemics happen. Uh, they are periodic features of human history. Uh, 15 flu pandemics in the last 500 years, as I mentioned. Um, and then we forget as soon as it passes and we don't take the steps that would protect us um, uh, against future pandemics. So we keep repeating the cycle. And so I think improving our response starts with improving our memory, understanding that there is this perennial threat called pa pandemics and that at this point in time, we are not able to either predict or prevent them, but we can prepare for them. So uh, we need to do that better. In order to preserve and kind of uh, continue this memory, I think that we need some kind of institution that is the receptacle for it, um, that is a kind of repository for not only the memory, but also the scientific knowledge that we accumulate in between times. Um, I remember in 2013, I went to India to report on the, the Kumbh Mela, which is the biggest religious gathering in the world, tens of millions of people who uh, gather on the banks of the Ganges and uh, while I was there I learned that there is somewhere such a thing as a, a, a Kumbh Mela file which is where all the accumulated wisdom of the Mela officers the people in charge is placed and then this is handed down from generation to generation of Mela officers and we need I think the equivalent for pandemic responses. Um, governments of course have their own public health uh, organizations, national governments that is, they have their pandemic preparedness plans, but governments are short-lived. So this institute that is the repository of this memory and this knowledge, I think needs to stand outside the nation. Um, and it also, I think very importantly, because pandemics are global, has to have a global mandate. So we need something like the WHO. WHO may not be perfect, but we need it or its equivalent. And once we've got it, which we have, we need to fund it properly and we need to engage with it properly because we need to recognise, again, this is a lesson from history, that uh, it is, it'll never be anything other than political, but that if we fund it properly and if we engage with it properly, we can ensure to the extent that it's possible, its independence, the diversity of its representation and the fact that it will stay at the cutting edge of science as far as possible. And the remit of that organization also has to recognize the social, political, and economic uh, 
roots of pandemics and it has to come up with a response that is a sort of whole of society response that has to tackle inequality for example which is at the root of pandemics um, <clears throat> and finally i think that within nations since it is nations that are the kind of fundamental drivers of that pandemic response inevitably each time we need the structures that allow um, politicians on the one hand easy access to the best available scientific evidence and experts um, while preserving a sort of healthy distance between the two. Um, and I think uh, those structures also very importantly have to preserve the openness of scientific debate and recognize the fact that scientists, that science works by very often by outsiders challenging the dogma um, and uh, that the people in authority at the moment, the pandemic, explodes, emerges, might not be the ones that provide the insights that are increase our knowledge of that particular pathogen. And so I'll just end with a tiny anecdote again from 1918, which is that one of the first people in the world in 1918 to realize that the pathogen causing the pandemic was not a bacterium, but a virus, was a young French army doctor called René Dujaric de la Rivière. You've never heard of him, but he was posted on the Western Front at Troyes in Champagne, and he saw a troop of artillery uh, soldiers come through. They never made it to the front because they collapsed with the disease or had to be hospitalized. And he tested his hunch on them and on himself and was one of the first to provide evidence that the flu was caused by a virus. Um, so, yes, the insights that can unlock knowledge to the problem and, and shape the response may come from the most unexpected quarters at the most unexpected times, and we need to remain alive to that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to move straight to our second speaker now, Professor Neil Ferguson. Thanks, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm going to talk more immediately straight about COVID, though I have actually worked on the past on, on 1918 pandemic flu, studying the effect of exactly the same measures we're adopting now, namely social distancing in various US cities. And the US at the time was the forefront of the adoption of public health measures at a very advanced public health service. And because cities responded at different times to the pandemic, were affected by it and learned from each other, you saw very different patterns emerge across the United States. Um, I'm going to talk about three thing, uh, four things briefly, um, just the nature of science in a pandemic. Laura's touched on that already. I'll say a little bit about the epidemiology and, and policy challenges of the current situation we're in as we face what's called, rather poor name, second wave. A bit very briefly talk about the UK science policy interface and then a bit finish off about more general observations. So science in a pandemic and as you can tell from the people dressed up there I mean it is challenging and changes very quickly. And the thing I mean as Laura said to bear in mind is the uncertainty is always very high. The data is poor to start with and uncertainty at the beginning is enormous. You have a new pathogen and it only reduces gradually. If you're trying to inform policy though, um, policymakers need some information and so you're not in a typical scientific research context. Um, you have to undertake uh, analysis, research, experiments, clinical trials, whatever it is, 
at a highly accelerated pace. And there is a real risk of the perfect being the enemy of the good there. Um, as Mike Ryan, the deputy director of, of WHO said, and it's better to be timely and 80% right than, than be late and 100% right. It's also good to have multiple perspectives on any one question rather than a reliance on a single view. And I'll come back to that point. And I should say in this context, expertise and experience counts. I mean, um, so having worked on pandemics before, having an infectious disease background really does make a difference in terms of interpreting trends and the reliability of different data sources. And one has to be prepared for the fact that it will be a noisy picture which emerges. Not all studies agree, not all scientists agree. So generally it's good to look at everything. And there's something in science called systematic reviews. That's one way of doing it. But there can be a tendency to take a particular position at early point and then cherry pick whatever views which support that. Um, and the last thing is if there are, this is Occam's razor kind of fundamental principle in science, if there are kind of simple explanations for you know, why an epidemic is behaving in a certain way, then they tend to be right. I mean, very complex explanations um, uh, need considerable justification. A classic example in this case is that we can see a very clear correlation between the imposition of lockdown and the reduction of transmission and therefore the effect on mortality. And some would argue otherwise, but that is the simplest hypothesis. Just maybe to summarise what were the key scientific inputs into policy in this pandemic, and I'm not talking about just the UK here, I'm talking about globally. I mean, there are really um, three important things. One is how transmissible something is, um, and the classic R number, the reproduction number, number of secondary cases, tells you how quickly something will spread and how many people it will affect. And here we're talking about something which is more infectious than flu. Uh, basic reproduction number R0 to somewhere between two and a half and four. And that led to epidemics doubling every three or four days. So you have something which is moving very quickly, which from a political perspective poses a huge challenge. Firstly, most politicians don't necessarily understand exponential growth, but it means the epidemic and the consequences of it, the overall mortality will be twice as bad if you delay your action by three or four days. Um, and that is poses real challenges both for science and for policymaking. Transmission route is of course important, being spread by respiratory spread as compared with Ebola mostly through fluid, meant it could be ubiquitously spread in society. Lethality is key. Um, I would stand by these numbers that have been supported. We, we estimated back in February that on average in the UK around 1% of infected people might die and two or three percent might need hospitalization and this is very close to what we've seen. Treatments have improved since then which means that in a second wave that may be half but still a substantial burden of mortality. And finally it was a novel virus so we couldn't expect a significant fraction of the population to already have immunity and since even if you take a very utilitarian perspective that you don't care about old people's lives, um, most of us do, but um, then from that utilitarian perspective, you have faced an epidemic which will overwhelm any health system in the world, which is why universally the world responded the way it did. The final piece of evidence, which is what China provided for us, is that kind of draconian social distancing measures are effective. Where are we now? Um, this is something we produce every week. 
um, a map of UK surveillance data of you know, which areas of the country are seeing increases, statistically significant increases in cases. You don't need this map to tell you what's on the media. Um, we're not in the best position right now. But we're seeing what's called the second wave, but it really isn't. It's just the effect, the mechanistic effect of gradual relaxation in the social distancing measures we imposed in March. As we reopen, we allow more contacts and transmission resurges. I'm not going to go through all those pictures. They all say a common story. Um, there's a sort of data streams we analyze every day from UK surveillance data. But all European countries are seeing a resurgence of transmission. The growth is slower than in March because we are in a new normal. We haven't gone back to usual behavior and that means contacts are lower and it's the human contacts, contacts between households which are driving the epidemic everywhere. We also have a lot more testing. So the fact that cases are 10 times, you know, at the same levels as March means nothing. We're actually still at infection levels overall in society about tenfold lower than the peak of the epidemic. But inevitably hospitalizations, and we're seeing that in the data and, event and deaths will follow. Um, I've mentioned treatment already. I would just emphasize that, I mean, from an epidemiological perspective, I mean, our report back in March, which has been uh, highlighted by many, criticized by others, I mean, did point this out, that as soon as we did stop lockdown, we would see a resurgence of transmission. And so it is not an unexpected or unpredictable event. That's just a, a graph from that same report. Also, the important thing to remember is that we're at an early stage of this epidemic. We lock countries which lock down, imposed dramatic social distancing, minimized death today. That's, I'm not going to go through all the graphs in this audience, but you can look at the look at the commentary in, in the Lancet, but it basically shows that if, if there was no effect of lockdown, you wouldn't expect any relationship between deaths after lockdown and deaths before lockdown, because lockdown would have no causal effect. But in fact, what you see is a very strong correlation. Countries which locked down earlier had fewer deaths before lockdown, earlier stage of the epidemic minimized their deaths overall. But the graph on the right is more significant. If you look for antibodies in populations across Europe, it's hard to find any, except for small populations, with more than about 15%. And country averages are around 10% or less. So we have a lot, long way to go in terms of reaching this fabled um, thing called herd immunity. So the challenge we face is that COVID-19 has been delayed but not stopped. That we're in really the same position largely as we were in March maybe slower growing, but if we allow cases to grow inexorably, then eventually health systems will be overwhelmed. We currently have an epidemic in the UK, my estimate is probably doubling every two to three weeks at the moment. Um, and it's tenfold less below its March peak. And so that really gives us about six to eight weeks before we get back into that same sort of situation we were facing in March. Now, hopefully the measures announced so far will have an effect, um, but we can only take that incremental ramping of policies and wait and see so long. Um, but it fundamentally is a political decision of balancing the economic and social costs of interventions, which won't be a full lockdown. We know more about transmission now against the, the health impacts of the epidemic and the health benefits of inter intervening. To the science policy interface. This is a, from a Gallup poll conducted in 2018 by the Wellcome Trust globally. 
shows that basically the people who have trust in government tend to have trust in science. It also shows that there's more trust in scientists than there is in government, unsurprisingly. But there is a segment of society who neither trust government nor trust science. Just talking about the UK approach to scientific advice, which has learned lessons from previous crises. Um, Laura mentioned the importance of a kind of distance between scientists and politicians um, and the fact that we pull in a diversity of views. And that is what the UK system attempts to do, maybe imperfectly. I mean, in many other countries, there have been kind of very much more direct interactions between a few scientists and government. Here it all goes through committees and numerous number of committees. People have all heard of SAGE, um, but there's many other committees, Nerve Tagan, on SPIM, even the name lists go on. But fundamentally, the chief scientific advisor and for health emergencies, the chief medical officer are the two government appointed, you know, qualified professionals, but arguably civil servants who are appointed to give advice to ministers. In terms of being an external academic scientist, it's always made clear that our role is not to say what policy should be. I mean, that's a really, and I'll come to that later, a value judgment, but really evaluate what's the potential impact of different policy options, and then for policymakers to judge between them. I should also say we've never been involved, no scientists that I'm, academic scientists that I know have been involved in the details of policy, the exact rules which civil servants make up, such as the rule of six. And I'd emphasise, I've repeatedly emphasised it, and this is true of, of decisions leading to lockdown and the modelling leading to lockdown, there have always in the UK been multiple groups looking at the same problem. And only when there is a fairly high degree of consensus are recommendations put forward to SAGE. So that leads to a system with many checks and balances, um, avoid single in individuals, despite what the media might imply, having undue influence, but it's perhaps slower moving than in other countries. And let's finish by talking about some observations, and I'm not a political scientist, so these are just observations on, on the politics of COVID-19. Uh, this is a graph from Wired, um, which shows the extreme extremes of that politics, but rather con concerning extremes of that politics, namely the, the global growth in, in belief or at least interest in conspiracy theories around COVID. So to tackle one issue, which often comes up head on in the Swedish experience, um, it's often said, you know, what's the difference between uh, Sweden and, and Sweden somehow avoided lockdown? Well, it, it did avoid lockdown, but the differences are actually commonly overstated. Um, it used much more of a mix of mandatory and voluntary policies to achieve much the same effect. And all these graphs show various metrics, either from opinion poll surveys of behavior or from digital tracking of people's movements, for instance, um, comparing the Scandinavian countries and Denmark and Norway imposed UK style lockdowns Sweden did not. And you can see differences, particularly initially, in the what you might call the stringency of responses. Um, but they converged very much around April. So there were drastic changes to the behaviour of the Swedish population, which effectively led to drastically reduced contacts between people and the same effect as in terms of suppressing the epidemic as we see here. I mean, the issue of whether governments should adopt the voluntary and mandatory policies is really not one for epidemiologists. We only care about whether interventions are effective. Um, it's really one for behavioural and political scientists. 
I should also say in all of this, and we're doing quite a lot of work on this at the moment, um, when you evaluate how well countries did, there are two things which influence that. One is the timing of interventions relative to the stage of the epidemic a country was at. And then secondly, the effectiveness. And countries were affected at different times to different extents. And the UK suffered partly because it is such a globally connected country. Coming to the diversity of scientific views, I mean, this is as Laura pointed out, it is inevitable when data is noisy and not always consistent. And even now, many uncertainties remain and there are plenty of areas for debate. Is that debate valid? One of the things I particularly dislike at the moment is the idea that scientific debate around COVID is dichotomous, split into two camps. It's also unfortunate that scientists allow them to be themselves to be categorized as belonging to one of those camps. I would caveat though, I mean, science, scientists are an enormous group of individuals. And just because you work on chemical engineering does not make you an infectious disease expert. And so input and criticism is more credible if it actually comes from people with domain expertise, infectious disease specialists, and who actually are publishing scientific papers on the topic. If you're mainly publishing commentaries in, for instance, the Spectator, um, rather than actual scientific papers, then you could expect to be listened to less. Um, similarly, if you are well-meaning, um, I would say, economists and wanting to uh, critique um, the science of COVID, then you do have further to go in terms of building credibility in the area. The last thing I'd say, and I'm very conscious of this always, is confirmation bias, the cognitive bias that you want to kind of reinforce things you already believe in and think are true, therefore selectively filter the evidence in front of you, is a problem for everybody and is a problem for scientists just as well as everybody else in society. Just finally, and these are kind of just some thoughts rather than a coherent argument. Um, whilst I would say that infectious disease experts, those who've worked on pandemics before, have studied them for their whole careers, hopefully know more about how epidemics progress and what policies might possibly work. I don't think that necessarily gives us any greater right to say what should be done by politicians, by societies, or any particular greater insight in the very difficult challenge of balancing the economic impacts of policies against the health impacts. That is why we elect politicians. But there is a challenge, and we see it in the media today, of scientists' personal views effectively merging with their scientific judgment in how they portray issues in the media. And worse, that kind of risk that political perspective ends up ending, you know, affecting scientific objectivity. So if you start from the perspective that lockdown is wrong, then Clearly, you're going to search for evidence that somehow the science backing that policy must be wrong as well. Moving away from just the scientific community to the general societal debate around this, there clearly is an element in the current debate in terms of attacking science and scientists, which is principally political. It is not interested fundamentally in evidence. So downplaying the risk, cherry picking information, blatant disinformation, all the way out to the more bizarre conspiracy theories. And it is unfortunate that, you know, we see both emphasized particularly in the US today, but 
increasingly true in European countries, the UK, Germany, even France and Spain, where scientists and science is being used as a, a tool in this very polarized debate. The concept of post-truth politics comes in here and, and echo chambers, um, where you can basically just see nothing but views which support your own, in some cases, non-evidence-based view. And in that, there's a lot of resonances with what scientists have experienced in, in other crises, particularly the climate change crisis at the moment, um, but also in, in the anti-vax movement. And indeed, many of the same individuals who are skeptical about those things are also skeptical about science of COVID. That's maybe a slightly pessimistic view, but just to conclude, I mean, I think it is actually a mixed picture and there's some, some, some reasons to be hopeful. I mean, this epidemic has claimed at least a million lives and probably several times that, given that vital statistics reporting in most of low-income countries is, is absent. Um, but the global response to COVID-19 has undoubtedly saved many times more lives than the epidemic has yet cost. I mean, 1918, despite the efforts of US cities, we did relatively little to actually stop it, certainly in any sort of effective way. I would also argue that you know, experts have been essential in the response. Science informed that response, and we've learned an enormous amount of the about the virus in just 10 months. But against that, I've emphasized the pandemic is at an early stage and has best been you know, delayed so far. We have better treatments for people in hospitals. The death rate may be a little lower, um, but still poses a major threat. And there's real risks that the economic impact of the measures adopted, this fatigue in the population and among politicians and frankly among scientists, um, is going to make responding in the next few months much harder than arguably it was even in March. Against that, we do understand transmission better and are improving in our judgment around you know, what particular types of measures in a more nuanced way can effectively maintain control of this epidemic while allowing more activities, the new normal, to carry on. I'll stop there. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank, thank you both for those contributions. As I said at the beginning, um, I'm just going to ask each of you, you one question first, and then we'll, we'll turn it over to questions that have come from our audience. Um, can, I, can I just address you first of all, Laura? I mean, you made a very interesting point in the sort of last third of your talk where you spoke about how it's a quintessentially global problem but the agents for dealing with it are, are national and state-based agents. And you said that there needed to be some broadly international or global body to deal with that. I wonder if you could reflect on that in a sort of historical sense, looking back over a century or, or maybe even more. I mean, people who discuss trade policy often say there was a rise in international cooperation over a period of time, and we're now living through a period of declining international cooperation. Is there a pattern or a cycle or something that you can see here in this health cooperation, which is so fundamentally requiring global cooperation? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think it's pretty striking and pretty tragic that this uh, pandemic struck. And again, you know, maybe it's not a coincidence at a time when, I mean, we, we, we even have the language, we've been talking about it, the world is more polarised than ever before, societies are more polarised. And, and um, you know, uh, 
countries, national governments are withdrawing their support and importantly their funding from the WHO, which obviously affects its performance. I mean, and, and I think, you know, that has the support for this international layer has uh, ebbed and flowed across the century, or across the half century since, let's say the century since the first antecedents of the uh, of the WHO were created after the Spanish flu. Um, <clears throat> countries have left, countries have come back. And, and you know, I think um, it's all symptomatic of this underlying moment of social tension, um, which then becomes sort of self uh, perpetuating because you have the pandemic, you don't have the tools in place, the best tools in place to control it, at least at the international level. And then you see that it's, it, it itself exacerbates some of the underlying inequalities that perhaps caused it in the first place or made it more likely. Um, and so, and then you can get, you know, uprisings, you can get violence. We have seen an uptick in violence. We saw it before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic is also perpetuating that. I think of Black Lives Matter and um, matters and uh, some of the uh, violence that has happened in the US lately. Um, <clears throat> so it's really, it's it's not just a easy words when people say a pandemic holds up a mirror to our society. It really does because it happens because we're, we're divided and polarized. It's harder to control because we're polarized and it also exacerbates those underlying inequalities and, 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 and makes them worse. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, let me just address you now, Professor Ferguson. Um, you know, we, up, but prior to this crisis here in Britain, we were living through a moment which was quite dramatic in terms of Brexit and everything that was surrounding that. It's, it's a bit difficult to remember now, but that, that was obviously a very important issue and remains an important issue. And, and in that environment, a political culture emerged in which some people um, were disparaging about expertise, um, not necessarily scientific expertise, but, but other forms of expertise that had a bearing on, on that debate. And indeed, some of the people that now govern us came to power in part through using that kind of language. And, and what, I, what I wanted to just draw your attention to is, I mean, opinion survey data has always shown that medical experts have amongst the highest trust of, of experts of any sort. And so I wanted to ask for your observations whether in the wake of the outbreak of the pandemic, has that sort of medical scientific expertise been able to reassert itself in your estimate in, in the public domain? Or is it the case actually that the hostility towards expertise that was there before this happened mm -hmm. is gradually, the sort of populist sensibility is gradually affecting even the standing of medical expertise? I think it slightly depends on which audience you're talking about. I think um, if you talk about those in power, um, this pandemic has played out. I mean, I've sat on stage, I think, four or five times in different crises. And this pandemic has played out with much greater consequences, but very similarly to other situations. And all the criticism of people like Dominic Cummings sitting on stage, I never got a sense that our views were anything but respected and evaluated um, in much the same way as you know, Tony Blair's administration back in 2001 evaluated scientific input into foot and mouth disease. 
I do think some things have changed though. So the scientific community has been a global one for decades. I mean, you use the internet for decades, but the, the, wide, the wider effects of social media and, and, and the global world we live in has had, had an effect, I think, on how quickly you know, contrarian views spread within wider society. And in more vulnerable countries, I would say, I mean, the US, I would count in this way as a vulnerable country in terms of the nature of its leadership, that has had a, a negative effect on the policy response. I mean, saw a much faster politicization of the response than most other, most other democracies, for instance. Um, I would also say to something generally, and coming back to the previous question and Laura's comments, that whilst I do think we live in a more fragmented society, both internationally and within our cultures than we have for many decades, I think the global nature of biomedical research and how quickly information travels, I mean, I had multiple uh, email exchanges, conversations with colleagues in China back in January and February, um, which cross political divides is a real positive. We learned more about this virus faster than we have ever done before. And so that just has to, there are some positives in terms of the experience this year. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Um, now, we've, we've got a, a significant number of questions here, and as I did say at the beginning, we want to deal with a, a, as, as many as we can, but of course that won't be anything like the number we've got. But I'm just going to start here with a, a question for Laura Spinney from Emma, who, who's in London, who asks, in past um, epidemics, are there precedents to illustrate whether emergency laws and penalties are more or less successful than softer attempts to influence behaviour? <coughs> Um, yes, although the lockdown that we saw in the spring is is pretty much uh, unprecedented on its scale, um, on its scales, the different lockdowns and uh, and strictness. Um, but uh, I guess the accumulated wisdom of uh, trying the different approaches across a number of historical epidemics and pandemics is that you really want to avoid, and, and this is built into international health regulations and um, national public health organization strategies, you really want to avoid imposing um, mandatory uh, restrictions if you possibly can. Uh, you want to have people complying voluntarily if you possibly can. Um, there may be some cultural input to that where you know it's truer in some nations than others and we can discuss you know how how a Chinese style lockdown would or wouldn't have worked elsewhere but uh, it is generally true that people that, that your um, measures work better if people comply voluntarily and that of course um, uh, has um, corollaries which are that your population needs to be properly informed and uh, they have to trust you they have to trust your governments and they have to trust your scientific experts. And if those things aren't in place when the pandemic explodes, then it's too late to put them in place. Trust is something that builds up and that comes down, you know, over long periods of time and it can't just be put in place like that. So, um, yeah. Thanks. So now, now a question for Neil Ferguson from Xi Jin Su. Um, by the way, question is, if you say where you're from or what you're doing, it's nice for the rest of our audience because they know uh, who the questioner is a bit more. Um, and and uh, um, the question is, 
um, it's really about pre-existing immunity. Um, if pre-existing immunity does exist, what percentage of the population do you think already have pre-existing immunity? I should say the question is that uh, this is not, this is a very medical question, but we'll we'll put it anyway and see what our medical. It's, it's a question which has a political context as well, um, because one of the the major arguments by certain minority um, and, and propagated also by by you know, certain right wing um, publications in the UK is somehow a large portion of the hidden portion of the population has has immunity to this virus and therefore projections which said if 60% of the population could be infected uh, were exaggerated. So it is a very political question as well as a scientific one. In terms of the actual science, it's an interesting question. So there are different forms of immunity. There's what's called um, immunity mediated by antibodies, which we get when we get an infection and, and we can look for antibodies to see if somebody's been infected. And there's then something what's called T-cell immunity or really CD8 immunity which um, is another arm of what's called the adaptive immune response, um, but manifests in a different way. And, and there is some evidence, if you look at the literature, that there is a portion of the population where probably cross-immunity from human coronaviruses has an effect and gives people a certain degree of um, the ability to fight off the virus. I think where the critical disagreement lies is in how that manifests itself. I think it's entirely plausible that, for instance, one of the reasons why some people get basically almost no disease, have asymptomatic infection, um, but others get very severely infected. Uh, what there is no evidence of is this sort of immunity completely protects you, wouldn't such that you could never be infected, you would never show antibodies. And indeed, there's counter examples from Manaus in, in Brazil, in the Amazon, where estimates can now indicate it's one of the areas of Brazil which imposed virtually no controls. And they, I mean, if you have bodies stacked in the streets, but um, estimates from serological surveys now suggest over 60% of the population was infected in that epidemic. Okay, thank you. Um, so, question for you, Laura, from David Walter from Birkbeck College here in London. Um, the, the essence of the question is, if you look historically and compare this pandemic with previous ones, is a big difference, the questioner asks, the presence of big data at, at present? And more particularly, does, it, does the pandemic expose the significance of the cyber society that we're in? and the distrust that it, in some cases, appears to give rise to. The question's a bit more elaborate than that, but that, that's the essence of it. Is this big data cyber society a big difference between now and previous pandemics in as much as it might foster distrust? Um, well, uh, I think that fake news, misinformation has been a problem uh, always in pandemics, but um, perhaps <clears throat> we, have uh, a greater, I think um, Neil alluded to this earlier, we have greater volume and greater speed because of the internet, because of social media. And so uh, somehow, it, the, this, is, this is not at all scientific, but I have the impression that the volume of information and the volume of misinformation are roughly equal. Maybe <laughs> there's more misinformation. And it's very often difficult to tell what, what are the good sources. And, and they just circulate so fast. 
So you can be trying to uh, inform yourself and you, um, and you just get lost in the data. I, I, you know, I think it, it, there is a massive problem of information overload and knowing where to look for the right sources um, that you know, is separate from the trust issue. There is also a trust issue. Um, but I'm also, I've also been struck in this pandemic by how very hard it has been, even with our amazing surveillance uh, programs and our med medical and scientific knowledge um, to, for example, measure the number of deaths. It's just as difficult as far as I can see as in the past. Um, and that has to do with uh, understanding the actual science of the virus and how the virus works in the body, partly. Um, you know, whether a death from a stroke is, is in fact a death from COVID-19, for example. These are all things that will take time to sort out. So I think that's one thing that's really struck me is that just because you have the eyes on the virus, just because you have the, the data, the means of collecting the data, the means of sharing the data, some fundamental tasks that are essential to understanding, controlling a pandemic are still just as hard as ever. Thanks very much. So I have, I have a question now from Daniela Frank, an LSE student from Tallahassee in Florida, who's very generously given all the information required and a questioner. And um, the, the, quest, the question is that as studies have progressed and new information becomes available, the public is being asked to follow new directions on how to respond. And the questioner says, rather than people embracing these new insights, this has led to some backlash as people feel they're receiving conflicting information. Do you feel this is an issue stemming from the public's lack of familiarity with science and the scientific method, or are the institutions responsible for communicating the information um, in some way to blame? And perhaps um, Professor Ferguson, if you want to comment. Yes, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I know Tony Fauci has been um, criticised in, in that way in the United States context. Um, I would say that Early in a pandemic, we have an input, very imperfect understanding of what is going on, and that understanding will evolve through time. And so inevitably, messages, policies will change, reflecting that understanding. I think the clearest way of explaining that is just as I've done it. Um, clearly, if you take, it shows a degree of inconsistency, but it shows inconsistency only with in terms of the understanding we have of the science and how that evolves, not a methodological and fundamental inconsistency. And I think that can be communicated. Clearly, there can be those who can point out that, well, you said this then and you said that later. Um, I think it's coming back to the polarization issue, it's much easier, and, and the trust issue, it's much easier to communicate those changes of understanding in a, in a context where people have a high level of trust in both medical professionals, scientists and government than in a, in a very polarised situation. Hey, thank you. Um, so now I have a question um, from Elif Toka Tunalal at Regents University. And the question is, is there any country or region that has the trust of scientists and the trust of politicians today and have been able to handle the voluntary form of behavioural change better than others. Um, Laura, it's sort of, uh, yeah, can I turn to you and we'll see if you've got a comment on that. Mm. Um, 
Well, uh, you know, we're, we're all looking east to the examples of lockdowns that have worked <laughs> better, uh, apparently, at least um, from what we can see here, than in the West. Um, and, uh, you know, that was more or less voluntary, depending on the country you choose to look at. Um, but I think, for example, if you looked at Singapore, and it is it's important to say it's a small country with a small population, it does, I think, from what I can see there, seem to have been good trust between the authorities and the population. Um, uh, at least a few months ago, uh, regular, you know, communication, um, great transparency, a sort of whole of government approach where everybody was on the same page. Um, and importantly, I think good trust uh, in the government before the pandemic declared itself. Um, which I've heard Singapore politicians link back to the experience of SARS 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, um, yes, I think there are differences between nations in, in the extent to which they follow the instructions of their governments. Um, and partly that is coloured by historical experience, which has not been the same in some Asian countries as here. They had, for example, the example of SARS, which caused by a very related um, virus. Um, and that taught them some lessons which we uh, bypassed. Thanks. Can I just make a comment on that? Please do, yes. So I would say there's been no country which has relied entirely on voluntary measures. I mean, it's been... It's the extent of the balance between recommendations and mandatory measures which has varied. I mean, absolutely right. Singapore, and I know I work with many people in Singapore, um, has is an example of a country which has had you know, more, the balance has been more towards voluntary measures, but with a fair degree of stringency associated with them, but also has a very particular culture. I mean, I think some of the more interesting examples are the outliers like Taiwan and, and, and New Zealand, where you've actually seen a significant increase in the trust in government throughout this pandemic as compared with a decrease, which has been the common pattern, um, and a moving from a, a mandatory approach to a more voluntary approach in both countries, with mandatory elements still in place. Um, in some sense, a reward for success. And by the way, if I can just add something, in China, apparently, I've been hearing that um, faith, even pride in the government's response beyond uh, Wuhan and the area that kind of bore the brunt of the lockdown has increased. In Wuhan itself, people are still rather traumatized by what happened to them. So there's been a different response. So let's just stick with this theme a bit longer and take a slightly um, different angle on it. There, there are two questions here that bear on it. One is from Rupert, an MSc student at University College London, who, who's asking, do you think the relatively low mortality figures from many developing countries, particularly in Africa, are largely to do with poor reporting or are there other factors at play? And then there's a more general version of this question from Edmund Lee, who's asking, isn't it surprising the comparatively poor results achieved in wealthy developed nations like the UK and the US with ample scientific expertise. What are the challenges for both science and politics that are preventing us from achieving the same sort of results as we've seen in 
less developed and less wealthy, but also smaller and less politically influential countries. And he cites some of the ones you just mentioned, um, Taiwan, New Zealand, um, and, um, and a third country, which has gone off my screen. Um, but um, yeah, perhaps, you, uh, Neil, if you just want to say something, and if you do too, Laura, that's, that would be good. Yes, interesting topics. Um, so to some extent, when you look at what's happened in this epidemic, part of it is down to policy and part of it is down to bad luck. So part of the reason that New Zealand and Taiwan were able to do what they achieved is because they're relatively less connected to the rest of the world than, um, than other nations. But a big part of it is responding early and responding hard and, and imposing the measures they, they did. I think more generally, remind me, sorry, remind me of the first part of the question. I was so busy listening. Well, to the first part of the, the one, one question was emphasizing the better, the apparently better low mortality figures in developing societies. And the yeah, second I mean, one. So we are looking at that. We, I, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the center I run, we still have 30, 40 people working on COVID and most of them are working in the context of low and middle income countries with governments in those countries. I mentioned very briefly in my talk, I mean, there's very little in the way of vital registration statistics in those countries. And so I would expect, I mean, we know for other diseases, HIV and malaria, for instance, that about 5% of deaths get reported in general, in say, for instance, sub-Saharan African countries, which, um, and so I would expect we're seeing around that same percentage, around, you know, a few percent of the deaths actually get officially reported, partly because of just access to testing. Um, very few people get tested. That said, there are some structural reasons, um, lower population density in rural areas, and a very different demographic. I mean, if you have a country where half of your population is under the age of 18, you're going to have lower mortality than in for a disease which principally affects those over 75 than a country like Italy, Spain or the UK. I would just add two things to that. First of all, on Africa, that there was a sort of rumour, I think, at one point recently that Africa had somehow received different strains or forms of the virus than other parts of the world, and that that was an explanation for what looked like a relatively mild and relatively late epidemic. And the sequencing information suggests that's not true. It got its um, virus by hundreds of different importations from all the other parts of the world. So it's got the exact same viruses we've all got. Um, and the explanation must therefore lie elsewhere in the demographics, in uh, you know structural issues that Neil referred to and in reporting issues. And the other thing I just wanted to say was that I had the opportunity to interview the health minister of Kerala, the Indian state of Kerala, wow. which has a population of 30 million people. And at least at the beginning, in what we wow. might refer to slightly misleadingly as the first wave, they did really well. And that's obviously a low income um, country, but it has a really very good primary healthcare network, quite good surveillance. And um, they put what resources they could into it in terms of manpower. And that meant that the, the epidemic was, and they started very early. The epidemic was very visible from the beginning. And they also, the, the thing that she wanted to hammer home when she spoke to me was that they didn't just tell people to go home and leave work and so on. They really um, focused on the support of those people at home and, and uh, not able to work. And they 
brought them meals or they brought them whatever they were missing because they weren't able to pursue their normal activities. And she really wanted to emphasize that support of people who were having their lives changed and restricted. Mm. Well, let's make one more general point. Yeah. Which is regarding low and middle income countries. I mean, we made this point in a paper in science some months ago now. The policy options which are feasible in high income countries, I mean, which are a very high-income countries, more old people, um, higher mortality impact, are not necessarily the policy options the whole world should adopt. We were very clear about that. And we can see that unfolding now. Basically, the whole world locked down in the week following 16th of March. I think not all due to my paper, but um, the, um, it wasn't necessarily the right decision for every country to do. I and mean, it's not sustainable. And what you see in a lot of low and middle income countries now is, is an enormous economic impact, which is a, a proportion of GDP and their ability to absorb that impact is far, far worse than we've experienced in high income countries. Um, and lots of it has been written about supply chains and, and, and their vulnerability to these impacts. When we talk about long term impacts of, of this pandemic, they're going to be far worse, in my view, in low-income countries than in, in high-income countries in many ways. Just as in this country, they're far worse in low-income groups and, and deprived populations than high-income groups. I won't ask you to answer it, but I'll just draw it to the attention of our audience. We have a high school student from India, Vijaya Amritha, who's, who's making the point, sort of contributing to this in a way, and saying the difference between people living in rural areas and urban areas is a very fundamental point that ought to be considered as well. But I, I won't ask you to comment on that. Can I move to a slightly different topic? Um, John Mason asks, um, if global governance structures are being made and need to be made, in these extraordinary times, above and beyond the normal state apparatus, how do we ensure that such structures remain servants to accountable governments rather than their masters? And I think this gets to a point that many people are, with very different positions, slightly worried about. I mean, it's obvious that there are quite extraordinary restrictions placed on people that would not normally be acceptable. And the authority to make those decisions is something that's a live political issue in the UK and elsewhere. Laura, do you want to comment on that? It was directed at both of you, I should have said at the beginning. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I'd just say that um, there's a balance to be struck, isn't there? I mean, there was a story I read today about how certain Asian governments are, uh, you know, have extended some of the quite restrictive measures they put in place to control the pandemic and are now interfering in people's lives to quite an extent. And there are worries about that, that, you know, perhaps they've used the pandemic as an excuse to extend these powers. And there have been worries about that everywhere from the beginning. So you could see the international layer as a, as a, as a balance to that. I mean, this is, you know, one, one way of looking at that is the national governments are misbehaving and the international uh, a layer or institution organization could provide a counterweight to that. But of course, it's all in the negotiation and how you set up that institution, the powers you give it. It can only ever be funded by the nation states anyway. So they have that, those, uh, that control over it. Yeah, and I think if you just wanted to address the same question. Um, yeah. I mean, so I actually think we do have a um, such an organization, the World Health Organization. I direct a World Health Organization Collaborating Center I think WHO has its flaws, but 
as a UN agency, UN system agency goes, does a good job. Um, I see no appetite politically in the world for member state governments of the World Health Assembly to hand more power to the World Health Organization. So, I mean, I think in some cases that would be a benefit to do so. Um, I think the idea, though, that such an organization may gain power to itself, I think, is misunderstands how such bodies work. I mean, UN agencies are highly political organizations which balance competing tension stresses, funding streams from influential you know, member states, let's say, as we can see unfold today with um, the tensions between the US and China. And frankly, the fact, and I, I would actually applaud this government for doing so, the fact the UK has stepped in to make up the funding, the funding shortfall for um, WHO left by the United States. Just on the more general point, I mean, not about the international bodies, which, as you say, are somehow subordinate <coughs> to their member states, but national governments everywhere are making extraordinary decisions. And if we look back historically, decisions that are made in times of crisis often do become entrenched. Um, think about a completely different area. I mean, does anyone remember where income tax comes from? It was because of the Napoleonic Wars. Now, you know, it, it may now be a good thing to have income tax, but that's why it was there in the first place. So people, I think, do worry about the sort of entrenchment of, of shifts that are born of crisis. And I just wonder if uh, you would like to comment on how one deals with that worry, I guess. Uh, well, you, you can look at the negative sides or you can look at the positive sides. I mean, one mm. of the major worries before we went into this pandemic was that we weren't able to coordinate at an international level in order to tackle mm. climate change. Um, and, you know, there is a category of problem that we cannot, we cannot tackle without coming together internationally. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it just, it's just about the fine detail as far as I can see. We need to negotiate what powers we accord to that body um, and what we retain in our nation states. Okay, great. Thanks. I, mean, I, I also think, I mean, from a national political perspective, um, this is I mean, somewhat iconoclastic within the kind of individual perspectives of political parties. We have a conservative government which has you know, basically intervened with state funding in society on a much larger scale than we've seen since the Second World War, which is not something we might have predicted. And I wonder whether, I mean, Corbyn was criticised in the coming up to the election campaign for proposing similar levels of spending, but I whether, whether, in some sense, the floodgates have been opened, in, at least in terms of perspectives and what might be possible. Hmm. And that, of course, is something that's very central to the way we're thinking about this 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 whole topic. Um, I, I have a question here. Um, I, I think we've got time for one or two more. This is from Peter Huken, and he says, if we have adopted a new normal of shutting down economies, travel, education, and so on for a virus like this, should the world now adopt similar protocols for many of our more familiar diseases um, that could equally well be curtailed um, by such measures. So I guess that's for you, Professor Ferguson. So, <laughs> I mean, 
in in all of these things, it's a it's a balance of cost versus benefit. Um, I think the unique thing about the risk posed by COVID was if you do nothing, then you have an overwhelming stress on the healthcare system. It basically falls over, unless you're willing to just let people die at home, which mostly in civilized societies we're not. And therefore, even if you take mortality, deaths out of it, something had to be done. Um, I think there's an interesting question, a scientific question about any lessons we've learned about, you know, infection control in hospitals, in care homes, in other diseases. But I don't think, and we're talking about a different order of magnitude of mortality. Um, typically 10% of people get infected a year with flu, one in a thousand of them die. And here we have a risk of 60% of people getting infected and a 1% mortality rate. And that, that is a big difference. I would just add that um, there was a brilliant um, graph I saw which showed that um, mask wearing, um, uh, which, by the way, there's now overwhelming evidence that it does cut transmission and it does protect people from infection, um, despite what some people say, also cut the incidence of a, a number of quite common infectious diseases. Um, so I think it's really interesting because it does, as you know, it raises the question, are we prepared <laughs> Um, for the benefits that wearing masks brings outside of pandemics in other infectious diseases to impose that restriction on ourselves all the time? And probably the answer is no in most countries. And I should say we've seen almost, yes. no, flu. We've seen almost no flu this year in, in southern hemisphere countries. That's, that's right. In Melbourne, I believe there were 40 deaths or something instead of hundreds and hundreds as normal. So that's... that's um, I, I think um, we're, we're coming close to the end. I, there's, a, there's an interesting question here, which I want to put in the first instance to you, um, Laura. It's from Alex Green, a PhD student here at the London School of Economics. And he says, a frequent observation is that countries led by women have fared better than others. And he refers to um, your minister in Kerala, though, of course, she wasn't leading the whole country. But I mean, it is, it's clearly true of Taiwan and uh, of New Zealand and, and other cases. Um, could that be to do with this growth of trust in these in these cases that, that Neil referred to? And what would you comment on that point? I don't know. I find that really interesting. I mean, I guess we would have to control for some potential confounding mm. factors, like, for example, New Zealand, <laughs> that we often mentioned, but it's also an island. Um, but it's not always true. And... Um, there is an interesting pattern there. I wonder how much it has to do with communication, trust. Um, uh, I hesitate to say caring more about lives than the economy. <laughs> I think it's more to do with communication and, and building trust and perhaps uh, something as simple as TV manner. And that you've got the big example of Germany, of course, and Angela Merkel. <laughs> I have nothing to add. <laughs> the force of the example is not entirely clear, but it could be, it could be understood in different ways. Well, actually, um, you know, Angela Merkel did a very good job early in the pandemic of actually explaining the science. She is a scientist. Mm, she explained mm. the scientist. I mean, it's more fragmented now in terms mm. of the political discourse in Germany, but there was a high level of trust in the German response, and she. And we know about scaling up testing and the rapidity of the German response as well. Whether okay. it's anything to do with gender is another matter entirely. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question, though. I think I'll make this the last question. Um, so, Kaja Morphew, a public health student in York, has a question. Um, if mixing households is putting healthcare systems at risk of becoming overwhelmed, should we be just following the government advice or should we be going beyond the current government advice? So here we have a very practical question on, on which to end. Not, not exactly the theme. I'll come back to the theme in a minute. But, um, yeah, you are certainly someone in a position to comment on that, um, Neil. It's an interesting question. I, I tend to try to avoid advising people what to what to do myself. Um, I mean, that is the government. I would say the risks are, you can do relatively little about transmission risks within your own household if you live with other people, I mean, just inevitably. But just being cautious around, I mean, sensible things around interactions with others. I mean, particularly, I mean, where we see social networks structured, we tend to have a kind of core group of you know, friends, people we have close relationships with, and then a wider group of interactions, particularly around a wider group, people you see less frequently, but there are more of them. I mean, use sensible, restrict, you know, not restrictions, but be sensible in terms of minimising infection risk. Okay, listen, thank you both very much indeed. I mean, we've had some really um, interesting insights into this question today. From Laura Spinney, we heard about how the pandemic can't help, in a sense, being political. But she went on to suggest some ways in which we could learn from the history of attempts to deal with it in the past, and in particular, the importance of having an institutional repository of memory, of memory of science, but also just memory of public um, attitude to these sorts of crises. And from Neil Ferguson, we, we saw a number of points, both coming out of his work, but also dealing with the UK politics science interface. And he ended, and I think it's a good point for us to end on too, with some reasons to be hopeful. So I hope we've um, given you some food for thought, some reasons to be hopeful, and I hope you uh, have a safe um, next week. Thank you both very much to our speakers, and I will metaphorically clap on behalf of all our audience.